I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on a special Pledge Drive edition of Life Examined, we're bringing you a couple of our favorite interviews. Science journalist and author Lydia Denworth explores the science behind friendship. Can having strong and lasting friendships determine how successful you'll be? Not to say that there aren't some successful jerks out there, but you know, the best odds are that if you're good at making friends and you have strong friends around you, you will do better. And later, have we lost the ability to listen? We'll get some simple tips and secrets to really hearing what someone has to say. Common myths around listening is it's your job as the listener to make sense of what they're saying. The dirty little secret of listening is to be potent and powerful as a listener. Your job is just to help the speaker make sense of what they're thinking. Two experts join me to talk about the science, value, and practice of friendship and of listening well. That's next on a special Pledge Drive edition of Life Examined. It's that time of year when we ask for your support. So if you enjoy Life Examined and can give a little bit more this holiday season, please consider making a donation, small or large, and help to support what we do each week. Go to kcrw.com give to make your donation now, and thank you. This week, we've picked two of our favorite interviews. We start with friendship and science writer Lydia Denworth. When it comes to human relationships, we invest time with our partners and family, but most of us don't prioritize our bonds with each other, our kinship, our friends. After all, a lasting friendship takes time and energy. We want our friends to always be there for us, but that's not always guaranteed. So what's the value of friendship? And what can we learn from primates about the value of social bonds? Because it's not just humans who have friends. Author and journalist Lydia Denworth has written about the meaning of friendship in her latest book called Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. She says that a good friendship is as important to our health as diet and exercise, and those who are good at making friends are far more likely to be successful in whatever they choose to do. Well, Lydia Denworth, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Hi, Jonathan. It's good to be here. When we, when we think about friendship and we go way back into time, I, I, I presume that the idea of friends might exist between animals and might be pre-human. What do we know in terms of the evolution and the biology of friendship? Yes, friendship exists across species, but we did not know that until quite recently. So, and, and finding friendship or something like it in other species is one of the things that has shown us recently that that there's so much more to friendship than we thought that it that that it's this fundamental thing and that that's a there's a bigger story um and in people we thought it was really cultural a byproduct Mm -hmm. of language and human civilization and we've appreciated it for thousands of years all the way back to aristotle and socrates and um and then philosophers through the years in between but um, but it's only really in the last like 20 years or so that we have understood that there's this biology and evolutionary story there. Mm. W- would you say a little bit more about that? I mean, is this something we see in primates? W- where does it exist? Yeah. So especially in other, in non-human primates, uh, we see, if you call it friendship or not, I mean, is a little bit of a, of an, of a question. Some scientists sure. do call it friendship, some don't. There's lots of concern about you know, uh, making assumptions about other animals, but I'm going to go right ahead (laughs) and call it friendship. Um, Especially, so it's especially interesting in non-human primates and monkeys and apes, 
because they have social lives, many of them that look more like ours, and their brains are quite similar to ours. Mm. So what we see in the way they interact can tell us quite a bit about our own history and our own propensities and abilities. And it's also the case. So for instance, there was a lot of research done on baboons in Africa, and they were they live in an environment that's probably very similar to where um, to where humans first um, you know developed, and and so we can kind of look to the baboons in a way as a very simplistic version of what of what what well, you're stripping away the complex variables of human life and you're looking at mm. the way these animals interact but so the baboons have friends rhesus macaques have friends gorillas i mean there are differences in different species but it's also the case that zebras hang out with the certain animals in the herd more than chance mm. would predict and not just their relatives and of course elephants are famous for their lifelong bonds, um, again, not just with family members, but even zebrafish will um, behave differently in the presence of familiar fish and strangers. They freeze when there are um, un, you know, strange fish around and, and they're much more relaxed <laughs> when they're in the presence yeah, yeah. of their, quote, friends. So we see this kind of social behavior in all kinds of species um, but in humans, of course, it is it is uh, it's much more complex. But like I said, that finding it in these other species, and especially in the monkeys and apes, um, I mean, that's where we've learned the most, I'd say, about our own uh, relationships. It's interesting because part of me would think you would have maybe your mate or your family, and then anybody else might be competition. Or somebody you'd have to deal with, but but I guess what you're saying is that in these in these species, really, um, there there is a sense of bonding, and maybe you can talk about what we know about the purpose of these friends, or or why why you know a a baboon would choose to keep a friend around. Yes, well, it's so it's I think it's quite fascinating. It really goes back to thinking about why we and other species live in groups, and the mm. bigger the group the more complicated the dynamics, but the more you're also able to accomplish in some ways, right? And so so one of the theories is that our brains, as our, well, as our social world got more complex and we had to keep straight, not just our relationship with this person and our relationship with that individual, but their relationship with each other, say, or, you know, um, and, keeping track of the relationships and of personalities and of the histories, it requires a bigger brain. And so that's the social brain hypothesis that the complexity of your social life is, um, is an important part of how we got to be as smart as we are as humans. Right. Um, but also to get to what you sort of specifically, like what does it get us? Well, it turns out that there are real evolutionary advantages to being good at making and maintaining friends. Um, you could say that there has been a survival of the friendliest <laughs> and that, mm. and that mm. is true. So we first saw that in these baboons that researchers were studying in Africa and they had always thought that dominance hierarchy was probably the most important factor in the fate of these individual animals over time. Right. Right. And, you know, baboons are a very hierarchical species and these but these uh, primatologists were watching baboons over 
generations actually of the same troops and so they were and they 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 behave like the scientists are kind of like glorified gossip columnists they're t- keeping track of exactly who does what to whom when <laughs> who helped right, who right. else is around but they were keeping track of that for a variety of reasons and then then something happened that that provoked them into thinking wait a minute maybe there's more to this so there was a there was a baboon named Sylvia who lived in Botswana and Sylvia was very high up in the hierarchy, but she was also really a pretty nasty piece of work. And she mm-hmm. only hung around with her daughter, Sierra. Um, that was her primary grooming partner. And and then Sierra, unfortunately, was killed by a lion because that is something that happens um, to baboons living in Africa. And Sylvia did something that really surprised the researchers who were watching her, but also presumably surprised the other baboons who were used to her bad behavior. She started trying to make friends. Instead Mm -hmm. of going off and and mourning the loss of her daughter and being grumpy in the sort of under an acacia tree by herself, she she changed her behavior and the scientists wondered what would be in it for her. Why would she do that? So what they what they did was they um, they were able to take all that data they had collected about the animal's behavior and they compared it, they, they added it up to a number that they essentially equated to how often the baboons were nice to each other. And then they measured that against their reproductive success. So how many babies they had and how healthy those babies, how long those babies lived or whether they lived past a year and their longevity, how long these baboons lived themselves. And in evolutionary terms, you cannot do better than than reproductive success and longevity. And what they found was that the baboons with the strongest social bonds lived the longest and had the most reproductive success. And it mattered more than where they were in the dominance hierarchy. And so this was this a hugely important finding. It was in Science Magazine, which is about as prestigious as you can get in, right, in science. Right. And, and it showed us that exactly what I said, that there are real advantages to this. And that, you know, it's not to say that there aren't some successful jerks out there, but if you want, <laughs> if you want to, you know, the best odds are that if you're good at making friends and you have strong friends around you, you will do better. And the reasons are probably, I mean, so for baboons, they have to do with um, protecting against predators. It has to do with finding food. It has to do with, you know, having relationships, people you can, uh, relationships you can rely on. And in people, it really is kind of the same. I mean, we want our friends there to protect us when the lions come, right? I mean, they're not the actual lions like you find in Africa, but there are plenty of figurative lions in our lives. And really, in many ways, that is what friends are for. We get all of the joys of friendship and the rewards that we get from building the relationship keeps us coming back for more. And we do that. So we have built up that relationship so that when we need them, our friends are there and we are healthier and we live longer when we have those friends. Yeah, I mean, a lot of your writing has been talking about simply the health benefits of of having a strong social network. I mean, and we can think about this in, in everyday life. I think of just the other day, my father was feeling ill, I had to go to the hospital. He called me, he called other people, we got him there, we got him back. P- people that don't have that, I mean, literally can't get the help that they need. 
But I sense there's a whole lot of other reasons why a strong sense of friends can, can keep you healthy long term. Yes. So it's it's great that that's the example you give because taking people to the hospital sort of figures largely in this history of the science of friendship. So for a long time, so what we know is that you live longer, your risk of dying earlier is greater if you are lonely, if you are socially isolated, and if you just straight live alone. Um, all of those things increase your risk by about a quarter to a third of dying earlier. So why would that be? And let me just clarify my terms because there are differences. So loneliness is considered the subjective feeling of a mismatch between the amount of connection you want and the amount that you have. Mm. Social isolation is an objective measure of your number of of interactions and the size of your social network. And then, of course, living alone is living alone. And Early on, when, when sociologists and epidemiologists were first beginning to see that there was this connection with longevity and social integration, they thought that this concept of social support was the explanation, which is exactly what you just mentioned about your dad, that if you need to go to the hospital and you've got someone there to take you, you're more likely to live longer. Like that would seem to explain it, right? It's sort of indirect. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely true, that you do live longer if you have someone around to drive you to the hospital. Right. But baboons don't drive each other to the hospital <laughs> and <laughs> they live longer too. So clearly friendship is doing something deeper, right? It's getting into ourselves and loneliness does too. So a lot of this research a lot of understanding the, the benefits of friendship came from first studying loneliness and looking at the negatives. So you can think of it as a continuum, right? right? Loneliness is the one end of your social integration and friendship is the other. And just in the same ways that loneliness is bad for you, friendship is good for you. So it affects, let me just run through the list so that people will really take this seriously. <laughs> mm -hmm. It affects your cardiovascular function, your immune system. So that's your susceptibility or your resilience to viruses and inflammation. It affects your risk of dementia. So your cognitive health, your risk of depression, your mental health, your stress responses, your sleep responses, your even the rate at which your cells age. So you biologically age faster if you are chronically lonely than if you are not. Um, and of course, as I've already said, you, you're just at risk of dying earlier if you are lonely. So mm. how is it that friendship, this relationship that exists entirely outside our body can get into the cells under the skin, as biologists say, and change how healthy we are? I mean, that's what's so fascinating about this. Certainly, and there must be so many different angles to this. For example, we did a program on the importance of human touch and how mm -hmm. that could impact uh, our immune system so much, how it was able to get, you know, um, really uh, babies that were born, you know, premature babies out of hospitals faster when they were touched and massaged. There's incredible research there. And, and I just imagine that that's maybe one slice of this. You're touched more, you're held more, you're hugged. Um, you are in connection. I mean, connection, as we know, is something that just feels good. I mean, maybe you can add more nuance to this, but it seems there's a, there's a lot of reasons for this. 
There are a lot of reasons, and you're right, touch is one of them. Affective touch, we call it, that I actually wrote a cover story for Scientific American about this, um, that mm. you know that, that it's one of the first ways that infant, well, that newborns learn to be social because they're getting that caressing touch from their mother usually right, right away, right? And, and it's wiring up their brains in a specific way. Um, but also, all of our senses. I mean, that's what I think is so friendship is about the senses. And actually, during the um, pandemic, one of the things we were missing, so zoom, the a zoom conversation is a whole lot better than not having a conversation and not yeah. connecting. And it gave us the audio and the video, but we couldn't get touch, we couldn't get smell, we couldn't, you know, and you don't think of those pieces of your relationship with your friends in the same way, you know, in the same way that you do sort of looking at them, um, but they were missing. And mm -hmm. that and that does, there is a cost to that. And so our, our brains take in through all of our senses and then we process that. Um, but we, you know, there's still, this is actually where the research is continuing to understand uh, the scientists call them the mechanisms and pathways that, you know, how is it that friendship does these things? Um, I mean, in the immune system, one of the things we know, I said that it, that friendship or loneliness can affect how susceptible you are to viruses and inflammation. We know that what happens is that your gene expression. So, you know, your body, you, you come into the world, right, with a sort of blueprint in your genes, but we know that a lot depends on what happens to you then, whether those mm -hmm. genes are turned on or off. It's like right. an opinion that is never voiced <laughs> if if mm, they're turned the off, it, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, the ex your social experience can affect whether those genes in your immune system that control how your white blood cells respond, it can affect whether they're turned on or off the genes. So um, obviously there's even more complicated than that, but that's that's a good enough of a, I mean, you can see just how, um, how specific it can get, <laughs> right? Sure, um, sure. And, uh, and, you know, stress is another big, it's, it does make sense that um, we know that hanging out with people who you like and feel supported by and who you trust calms you down, right? It lowers your cortisol levels. It um, it releases happier hormones in your body, oxytocin and dopamine and endorphins and things like that. Um, and then once stress in your body is a little stress is okay. It's actually can be good for you, but chronic unrelieved stress, of course, we all know is is terrible for you, and loneliness is kind of the equivalent of that it's 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 a chronic a little it's it can be a chronic problem that 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 changes the way your body responds to the world um and leaves you less healthy mm. um, and actually i just want to add to this because i think this is fascinating and this is quite new um well, the theory is not so new, but the proof is new. So back in the 90s, when people were just beginning to study the physical effects of loneliness, they had a theory that loneliness is like a biological warning signal. It's like hunger or thirst. It's your brain telling you that it's time to connect. And, mm. and that would be the case then that you could say that loneliness is like stress a little bit is good for you because it is reminding you that to get back out and 
connect with people. And that if it's unrelieved and chronic, it starts to wear down your your internal your cells and things in your body. Um, and just recently, MIT, ironically, right at the beginning of the pandemic, as we were all going into social isolation, MIT showed that deep in the brain, loneliness looks like hunger. That the looks like hunger. Yeah, the huh. pa- hunger pangs and the feelings of of unrelieved loneliness um, look very, very similar. So that yeah. is what it is, which I just think is fascinating. It is, yeah. What a way to think about it. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, and thinking about, I think cortisol and stress. I mean, as you were talking about this, I just I had this feeling of uh, that I think a lot of people can relate to, which is that you see some dear friends, you sit down together, and there's almost this big exhale of here yeah. we are, right? Yeah. yeah. We can settle in. We're safe. This is we're happy. You know, the stress of the world just kind of just fades away for a little bit. And and I find that that is truly so unique among a, a healthy friendship. Because let's face it, sometimes with family, it's not always that case, right? There's a lot it, it of complications there. It can be that there. or it can right. be toxic, you know, with right. your family. Right. Um, in fact, that is what the word friend, we use it to describe the quality of a relationship. So if you tell me that your brother or your sister or your spouse is your best friend, you're mm-hmm. adding a qualitative element to what I know about that relationship. You're telling me about the value added, right? It's not just about being siblings, it's about being great friends. And that tells me that they make you feel happy and, and good right. and safe in exactly the way you just described. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to KCRW Pledge Drive Week, and that was Lydia Denworth, science journalist and author of Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. Coming up, Oscar Trimboli talks about how to be a better listener and learn to pay attention to each other, something that's not always easy. We'll be back with Oscar Trimboli after this short break. And just a quick minute for us to say a huge thank you to all of you who have supported and continue to support us at KCRW in our life-examined journey. You can join us and become part of the team by going to kcrw.com slash give. We'll be back after the short break. Introducing the KCRW donation car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Life Examines. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and you're listening to KCRW's Life Examined during our season of Giving Back. We just heard from Lydia Denworth talk about the value of friendship, both physically and emotionally, and how some of the latest research shows that when loneliness becomes chronic, it changes the way your body responds to the world and leaves you less healthy. I wanted to follow up this conversation by talking about something you're doing right now, or I hope you're doing, and that is listening. So what does it mean to truly hear what someone is saying? And is there a cost of not listening effectively? Does the inability to listen sow confusion, chaos, and conflict? As we'll learn in just a minute, the brain thinks much faster than we speak, which means oftentimes the intended message of the speaker isn't very clear. So how do we learn to work with this, to slow ourselves down, and to really pay attention? 
Oscar Tromboli is a podcast host and author of Deep Listening, Impact Beyond Words. He says listening is situational and relational, meaning we listen differently in different contexts and scenarios. But ultimately, we all face the same four poor listening villains, which we'll get to in just a minute. Well, Oscar Tromboli, thanks for joining us all the way from Sydney, Australia. G'day, Jonathan. Looking forward to listening to your questions. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Um, speaking of listening, something that, that both of us care deeply about, why have you been so fascinated by it and, and been talking about it for, for quite some time now? What, why is it of such importance to you? For me, I've been lucky that I grew up in a community where there was 23 different nationalities at my school. So I always was kind of listening in a really different way. But when I got into the workforce, I quickly realized this was actually an advantage or a superpower, but something that other people didn't have. They tended to listen through one lens. And for me, in my work career, what I discovered is the cost of not listening is something we, we don't consider, whether mm. it's a customer that we don't win or a, an employee leaves before they want to, could be a project that's running over schedule, or when you listen to any commission of inquiry. So the cost of not listening to me is huge. And I just wish more people understood that the root cause of confusion, chaos and conflict is often the absence of listening. Mm. You know, I, I, that phrase, the cost of not listening, is, is really not one we think about, is it? What, why, why does that not enter our consciousness, do you think? I think that's true in the West. Mm. I don't think it's true in high-context cultures in the East. Mm. I, I think places that value silence a little bit more, uh, uh, the cost of not listening isn't as obvious. But we're also a speaking biased culture. In, you know, the 20th century, in, there's so many courses to, to speak effectively, speak with influence, mm. speak with persuasion. Communication right. is considered speaking. And yet communication is 50% listening and 50% speaking. And I don't know about you, Jonathan, and the school you went to. I didn't have a listening teacher. Right. Yet, yet the teacher we remember the most are the ones we know that listened not only to what we said to them, but what we really truly desired from our future. So the, for me, the cost even shows up in, in Google searches, people searching for speaking training, outnumber people searching for listening training by a factor of 10 to 1. Mm -hmm. And that's the cost you know, we, we're just not even conscious that it's something we should be thinking about. Yeah. You've looked a little bit at, at the science of listening, and, and I'd be curious to, to kind of uh, to bring that into the conversation as well. Yeah, we've looked at it from multiple perspectives. We've looked at it from a neuroscience perspective, but also from a linguistics perspective as well. From a neuroscience perspective, I'd love everybody to know this about listening. If there's only one thing you take away from today's conversation, the 125-900 rule, I speak at 125 words a minute, but I can think at 900 words per minute. So the likelihood that the first thing that I say is actually what I mean, it's like 11%. You mm. get better odds in a casino in Las Vegas. <laughs> so one of the first pieces of science you need to know is that whatever the person says immediately is what they say immediately. We don't send an email straight away. We probably type it out, make some edits, and then do a send. But when it comes to speaking, we assume that whatever the person says the very first time is exactly what they mean. 
And the opposite is true for the listener when it comes to their neuroscience. Although the person's speaking at 125 words per minute, the listener can listen at 400 words per minute. So we are programmed to be distracted. In fact, you can only listen continuously for 12 seconds mm. and then your mind will go somewhere else. So from the from the brain's point of view, if, if we know these really simple basics, we can start to become aware of a couple of simple things to do. We had fun with the linguistics and, and worked with uh, listening professors around the world and came up with a listening quiz where the four villains of listening emerge from the way people think mm. they listen versus the way they actually listen as well. So we had some fun and we created the four villains of listening. Yeah. And that was a, a three-year research project that's still ongoing. Over 8,000 people have taken the quiz now. Mm. And one thing that's consistent, Jonathan, is that 1,400 listeners have said, hey, I'd love you to track my progress. And the three things they always say improves their listening switching off their cell phone, drinking water every 30 minutes during a, an extended conversation and taking three deep breaths at the beginning of a conversation. Mm. Wow. Uh, such such simple things, as you say, that that really strikes me is particularly the water. Uh, but but maybe you can tell me why you think those those are effective. Well, the first thing to say is they're simple to say and they're difficult to practice. Mm. <laughs> right. True. <laughs> So for, for many of us, we're, there's a, a level of addiction to the cell phone, to the laptop, to, to the tablet, to any form of electronic device that's distracting us. And it's no coincidence that the psychology and the PhD research that was used for slot machines in Las Vegas to make sure people kept pressing the button on the machine endlessly. Uh, the same research has been used to make sure that you have your notifications on on your phone. Mm -hmm. So those little red dots seem really attractive. They make them even more attractive and they put numbers around them to really suck you in. And I always say, as someone who spent 30 years in the technology industry, use the technology, don't let the technology use you. And, and the practicality, you know, for a lot of people, if I said to them, you know, switch off your phone, Jonathan, I'd sound like a drug dealer who mm. just took away your drugs. Right, right. Mm. And, and for most of us, just switch your phone into airplane flight mode would be a great starting point. There, there is research to say that if your phone is on, you're you're still paying attention to it when it's off. Mm. Uh, your, your mind's in a much more relaxed state. The breathing and the water are all connected to the biology of the human body. The mind, the brain, 5% of body mass, but it consumes 26% of our blood sugars, Jonathan. Mm. And listening takes part in the modern part of the brain. It's called the prefrontal cortex. If you put your hand just on top of your skull, on your forehead, right there, just sitting behind that is the most modern part of the brain. And it's a very hungry process to listen because people don't know how to do it. They weren't taught at school and they can probably speak about wine or cheese in a more complex, nuanced way than they can talk about their listening. The three deep breaths just sends a signal to the part of the brain and the body known as the parasympathetic nervous system. It's that part of your body that says everything's okay, you can relax. 
one of the things that are common myths around listening is it's your job as the listener to make sense of what they're saying. Mm. The dirty little secret of listening is to be potent and powerful as a listener. Your job is just to help the speaker make sense of what they're thinking. That last part, I think, is is really important um, because as as a listener, we think, oh, there, there needs to be the perfect retort, there needs to be the response. But but what you said there strikes me as as a much different way of thinking about this, which is um, to support the speaker, to to help them express exactly what you said, exactly what 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 they mean by what they're speaking. What can you say a little bit more about that? For many of us, we're addicted to that process of jumping in and interrupting. We're addicted to the process of fixing. Mm. And we we want to contribute to the dialogue. One thing when I work with my clients around this is I often say to them, if it's a one-on-one dialogue you're having with somebody, sometimes the only question you need to ask at the beginning of the conversation is, how would you like me to listen? Now, some people say in that moment, they're quite shocked because the people they're speaking to simply say, look, I just want I just want you to listen. I'm just trying to process something. I don't think there's an easy answer. If there is, I probably would have come up with it. But just, just hear me out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people say, yeah, I want to evaluate. I want to look at alternatives. I want to come up with solutions. But it helps you notice where your listening is at. Too many of us are listening from our side of our brain rather than from the other side, listening from where they're coming from. So again, it comes back to that simple 125-900 rule, Jonathan, we mentioned earlier on. Once you are comfortable knowing your position in the conversation, you can play a really powerful role to help them express exactly what they mean rather than what they say. And you know when it's happened. And Jonathan, you've probably seen this happen yourself. If you just take a moment longer and they go into a five-minute tirade about some particular issue, they'll feel like they're completely exhausted. A really powerful, potent question to ask them at that point is simply tell me more about that. Mm. And often they'll take in a deep breath. You'll notice their shoulders go back, their spine becomes erect, and they'll use this phrase while sighing. They'll go, well, actually, Jonathan, now that I've thought about it, what's more important is we talk about this. Or they'll say, now that I've thought about it, could we just spend a little bit more time over here exploring it? And then listening becomes really light for you as the listener, but it becomes really powerful for them as the speaker. Mm, I appreciate that. I, I'm putting, I'm, I'm making a few notes here uh, on my own on the side to pick up some tips. I, I love this. Um, I wanna, I wanna jump to the question of of the four villains in listening. This is something that that you referenced a bit earlier in our conversation, and it's something that you've been working on through through studying this. So, so what are the four villains? So the four villains came about when I consistently heard people in my workshops, people that I'd worked with, say to me, "Oscar, men and women listen differently." Hmm. I, I, I spent a lot of time going through the research. There's research that's been done in MRI machines about looking at brain imaging and how the female brain processes in multiple parts of the mind as opposed to 
the male part of the brain, which focuses on a really narrow part of the brain, which won't surprise anyone, is problem-solving. So what I speculate is, and what they always say to me, is women listen to feel and men listen to fix. And this made me curious, and I thought, well, I'm not always like that, and great female leaders I've interacted with aren't always like Mm -hmm. that. Let me start a research. And we started by researching the barriers. What are the things that are getting in people's way when it comes to listening? So we researched a thousand people about what gets in their way. And we also researched a completely different thousand people. And we asked them what really frustrates them when other people don't listen. And our researchers came together with four archetypes, four listening villains, the four things that most consistently got in the way based on the research because people think they're great listeners but they can't describe what they do when they are listening well yet when it comes to listening poorly everybody can describe it very easily Mm. thus the villains came to life and what we noticed the four villains were the dramatic listener the interrupting listener the lost listener and the shrewd listener The dramatic listener loves to listen to your story because it gives them a stage to tell theirs. (laughs) Ah, I'm really struggling with my boss right now, Jonathan. And you jump in and say, you think you've got problems with your boss. Let me tell you about mine. (laughs) So this is a dramatic listener. And what they value is connection. Uh, They move from empathy to sympathy really quickly in a conversation. So it's the dark side of being too connected through a story. It's 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 okay to um, tell a story, but it's when it's appropriate. And people who leave a conversation with a dramatic listener just say, oh, again, it's always been about them. The interrupting listener is the quiz show contestant that hits that buzzer before the host has finished asking a question and right. they just answer the wrong question. <laughs> so they value time more. They're very productivity orientated and their mind is going really quickly and they're going, I I can pattern match, I can tell where we're going. And all of a sudden they realise they aren't actually answering the right question. Unfortunately for the interrupting listener, in only one third of cases will the speaker tell you you've interrupted them. In two thirds Mm -hmm. of cases, they will just let you continue and disconnect from the conversation. That's interesting. That's a It's a good example of the cost of not listening. The lost listener is distracted by internal and external distractions. They may be distracted right now. You may be thinking about what you want to have for breakfast or lunch. You could be thinking about what kind of chores you need to do for the weekend. Uh, You could be thinking about a holiday that you wish you could have and you're drifting away because you can only listen continuously for 12 seconds before you need a reset. But the lost listener is also distracted by external things, their phone, the coffee machine in a coffee shop or, or another conversation. And, and they look vague to the speaker. The, the, their eye contact is not always where it should be. And then finally, the shrewd listener. Yeah, the shrewd listener is disproportionately represented in the following professions, the medical profession, Uh, any industry that takes a brief, accountants or lawyers or salespeople, Mm. anybody who has problem solving at the primary orientation of where they see their value. So if you were seeing the closed captioning 
for a shrewd listener. They, they're listening incredibly intently. In fact, they're, they're brilliant fake listeners. They nod. They give great mm-hmm. <laughs> but in their mind, they're going, oh, my goodness, this is such a basic problem. I can't believe I studied 11 years at university and did a master's and a PhD, and we're still dealing with these basic problems. I wish you'd hurry up because I can tell you three other problems you haven't thought about. Mm. And they're drifting away, trying to get in a problem-solving mode. And for me, I'm a shrewd listener. Professionally, I'm a shrewd listener at home, and I'm a lost listener. Uh, sorry, pursued listener at work and lost at home. So listening is situational, it's relational, and it's contextual. Yeah. You'll listen differently to people. You'll listen differently to a police officer than you will to a school principal, for example. Yeah, I think that last point's pretty fascinating, that, that we can embody any of those uh, those four villains or archetypes, like you just said, depending on the context, depending on the situation. So we're kind of malleable listeners too, aren't we? Well, we're humans and we're amazing, creative, flexible instruments. You know, for me, my brother-in-law's visit re really regularly on a weekend and there's always this religious debate, Jonathan, and they get mm. into this religion so much and I just disconnect because it's the religion of Canon cameras versus Nikon cameras and neither will <laughs> succeed. Nobody will admit uh -huh. that their camera could be actually better at some things than others and I just disconnect. <laughs> uh, I just drift away. It's like uh, occasionally they say to me, what do you think, Oscar? And I said, I, I use my phone as a camera. I don't think I'm qualified to be part of this conversation. <laughs> right, right. So uh, that that's where it shows up too. But, you know, it also shows up in patterns. So I, I remember three years ago I was, I was speaking to somebody in Chicago and they were saying to me, it, it was it was October and they said, well, we've got this grumpy uncle who comes to Thanksgiving dinner and he always messes it up. Um, how do we listen to him? Because he goes on this really continuous regular tirade. And this is a really good example of relational listening. So I said, just ask him, when did he first form this opinion? Mm. The, the opinion was expressed as a political point of view. And they sent me an email in early December saying, I cannot believe what happened at our Thanksgiving dinner. We asked, I asked the question, when, when did you first form this view? And the grumpy uncle basically said, when I came back from Vietnam, everybody ignored me. Mm. Nobody paid me attention. Nobody respected the duty I undertook on behalf of this country to protect freedom. And the conversation for the rest of the night was completely different. There was a connection beyond belief. And they've stayed in touch. And every Thanksgiving dinner now, that grumpy uncle is now a valued member of that community and considered a wise elder uh, where people ask really important questions. But in the past, all they did was listen to how he's expressing himself from a mm. political point of view rather than listen to what he actually meant, which was taking them back to the beginning of that story. And there is such a shift in empathy with that question because mm. because we love to shortchange people. We, we love to think, oh, this was just a ridiculous thought. But that moment right there was real insight into who someone is. And that's something we're not often interested in, in looking at. So I, I just want to point that out, that there's something I think kind of extraordinary with that with that question. People say to me, Oscar, all oh, this listening caper, it takes so much more time. 
And I always say not as much time as the cost of this really ritualistic approach mm. to praying at the altar of the same story, God. You know, it, with a grumpy uncle, they were, it couldn't have been very pleasant to come to Thanksgiving for him, let alone them. But in that moment where they just listened a little bit, they listened a little bit differently, that, that's transformed not just Thanksgiving dinner, but it's also transformed the relationship with the uncle, yeah. with the nephew, with the nephew's children and, and the surrounding family. But for many of us, we are stuck in a set of railway lines that the rails are fixed. And Carl Rogers famously said that listening is the willingness to have your mind changed. That's the mindset that many of us don't turn up to in a conversation. And if you're just joining us, that was Oscar Tromboli. He's the author of Deep Listening, Impact Beyond Words. And that's all the time we have for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. We invite you to join our Facebook group and continue the conversation and share your thoughts about what you heard today on friendship and listening. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash life examined. But before we leave you today, thanks for tuning in during KCRW's season of giving back. We're so grateful that you're here with us. And if you're grateful for us too, show it with a year-end donation. Go to kcrw.com slash give. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.